the world's most exciting podcast, home of borders, language, culture, and here he is, New York Times best-selling author and National Radio Hall of Fame inductee, Michael Savage. I'm Michael Savage, host of the Savage Nation podcast, home of borders, language, and culture. Hear my new podcast each week as I speak with top guests from around the world. Right now, we have over 700 shows in our library featuring interviews with world leaders, scientists, faith teachers, and more, including President Donald Trump, Prime Minister of Israel Ehud Barak, Edward Teller, the father of the hydrogen bomb, Jerry Falwell, and so much more conversations and commentary you cannot find anywhere else. Other guests have included Samuel Cohen, the father of the neutron bomb, Breitbart's Alex Marlowe, the great author Peter Schweitzer, Colonel Douglas McGregor. Be here or be nowhere. The Savage Nation podcast. Catch the Michael Savage podcast on all podcast platforms every Tuesday and every Friday. Welcome to Greg Kelly Reports. I'm Carl Higby. Folks, don't worry. Greg will be back on Monday. I'm just taking over for Fridays for the summer while he enjoys his time off. But I come on here a lot, and you know, I talk about a lot of issues. And sure, they apply to all of us. But I want to take this time to share something personal that applies to most of you watching at home, probably. And that's the issue of our party leadership. Now, it's no secret that the GOP was absolutely dragged, kicking and screaming into supporting Trump. All the consultants, they all said he could never win. His campaign was a stunt, blah, blah, blah. And I don't believe Donald Trump will be our nominee. There's no chance of Donald Trump winning. Six out of ten Republican insiders say that Donald Trump can't win. In time, I don't believe Donald is going to be the nominee. And I think in time, the lion's share of his supporters end up with us. Donald Trump, Trump has no chance of winning this election. He's alienated too wide of swath of the American population. It never gets old. It never gets old. Look, but we see this on a local level, too. They, 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 don't, they don't get it. They, they do the same thing. I see this. I live in Connecticut, folks. We are the only state in the country where we have all the congressmen, all the senators, and the governor are all Democrats. There's a darn near super Democratic majority in both the state house and the state senate. It's not exactly the home, you know, the home field for Trump supporters, let's say. Now, there's like a half a dozen states out there that are in similar positions, but I've spent a good deal of time, we'll say, I don't know, philosophizing, for lack of better words, on what is going on in my home state specifically. And here's what I've derived. So while Democrats, look, Democrats do outnumber Republicans almost two to one in active voters, respectively, but we have almost as many unaffiliated voters as Democrat and Republican voters combined. So we're one of two states to elect an independent senator in recent history. So it says something. But you want to know why Republicans are losing places like Connecticut, aside from Republicans leaving to go to places like, I don't know, Florida? Um, you know, it's because they ignore our base. They ignore the base. You heard the phrase, you lose your base, you lose your race. Super true. And you know what people like me want? We want to vote for someone, not against someone, for someone. My personal example today, Ryan Fazio. Nice guy. He's running for state senate in a special election to represent me. Okay, so go ahead, look him up. All right, we go to his website, take a look. Now, he's taking gun owners for granted. He is. And just like many Republicans do in towns and cities all across the nation. But here's my problem with the circumstance. I talked to this dude. Like I said, perfectly nice guy, young. He'd make a great neighbor, borrow an egg or a cup of sugar from. He's a bit naive. 
And when I, I asked him, he promised to be pro-gun. That was one of my conditions of supporting him. And that's what he said. I need the gun vote and I need the MAGA vote. He is also running against a California native who is very anti-gun. She's backed by a national gun, anti-gun group called Moms Demand Action. You've probably heard of it. Now, this woman would take a pocket knife from an Eagle Scout if she could. So I told him day one, if you're pro-Second Amendment, I'm going to war for you, pal. That was my condition. That's how I was going to help him. I got yes-manned, and maybe my bad for believing him, but I went out and made the calls. And I, I'm talking, I made hundreds of calls to like-minded like gun-owning MAGA supporters just like me, all the people I knew. You know, and a lot of them came back to me and they said, hey, Carl, I can't really find anything about this guy. You know, he, he doesn't say anywhere that he's pro-gun other than that he's running on the Republican ticket. And you know what? They were right. He doesn't have a carry permit. He doesn't own a gun. And, you know, that's okay, but he's only got like this three-year-old essay supporting the Constitution, but he's not really anywhere on gun rights. So, you know, here I am asking my personal connections, people that I know that are, respect me, to support this guy. Maybe I was naive. And I guess I was overly optimistic that a Republican would actually stand for what he told me he would. But for most rational Republicans, the Second Amendment is a pillar of our party's platform. You, I mean, and you can't even support it publicly? It's not, it's not even on his website. It's not like I was asking him to wear a machine gun in a parade. All I wanted him to do was put out a statement like, I'll never cast a vote to take away lawful owned firearms or accessories from law-abiding citizens. I thought to myself, hmm, self... Geez, supporting the second line of the Bill of Rights, upheld by the Supreme Court, reinforced by Article 1, Section 15 of the Connecticut Constitution, in the Constitution state, doesn't really seem to be that radical of a stance, does it? I mean, apparently it was. All his advisors said, no, we can't do that. We'll lose the middle. That'll ruin us. So a lot of gun folks are going to be staying home this special election, I'm sorry to say. You know, a lot of other gun owners that I've spoken to are like, eh, you know, it's not worth it. All because a Republican candidate won't mention his support for the base's top issue. Now, this kind of crap is why Trump won in 2016. And I tried to explain this numerically to some of those same folks. Okay, let me break this down. In Connecticut, gun owners, they make up 25% of total active voters. And they vote almost exclusively for Republicans because we're the ones who say we're not going to take your guns, usually. Now, we cast close to half, half of all Republican votes and growing the percentage of gun permits are up double digits in Connecticut, two to one for women. We're the, also the most politically active people in politics. We are. We're the folks who put the signs on our car, the signs in our yard, the stickers, you know, stickers everywhere. We make donations. We go door to door. And I got the, oh, Carl, you just don't understand. No, GOP, you don't understand because you're not gun owners. You're not veterans. You're not actually Republicans. Because you've been beaten down by the Democrats so badly that you actually believe that gun ownership is a bad and toxic issue. And they're, they're terrified of that. And they're terrified of, of that right to bear arms. That's why I'm, I'm sitting this election out, likely. I don't know yet, but I may. If Republicans are not excited to vote for someone, you get bad turnout from your base. It's critical in a special election. Folks, I've run a ton of campaigns. Uh, we're, we're talking almost triple digits campaigns I've been involved with. This is 100% true. We lose elections as Republicans because our candidates don't actually believe in the principles of our party platforms in many circumstances. We lose elections because we moderate. I mean, for God's sakes, how long gone are the days of this? Ronald Reagan. This is a guy that actually believes the stuff he says. 
And when they fail to understand that they aren't picking up anyone anymore, there aren't any measurable amounts of undecided voters anymore. There's like six in the country. Okay, minds are made up. You know, it's, it's, it's all about turnout. And if you stand by your principles, if you stand by your base, if you excite people, you will turn out your base in droves and they will go to war for you. Now, it's like these rhinos, they, they forgot who their base really is. But I'm going to explain it to you, it's especially to my Republican colleagues in Connecticut. Listen very carefully. I'm the base. That's me in my Republican red pickup truck with the flag and the tow hitch with a not a liberal and a Trump 2016 OG style sticker on the rear window. And I donate to these campaigns. I work the phones. I call the people. I do the work. And you cannot replace me. Believe it or not, there are thousands of other Carl Higbees just like me in my town of 60,000 people. You, you doubt this, but I'm telling you there are. And like me, I, I'm trying to tell the party leadership, this is, the, like, this is what I was trying to explain to them the other night on the phone. I can prove this to you, too. If you have this mentality, if you believe in your, your principles as a Republican, you will win elections. Case in point, I, me, Carl, I am an elected member of what is the equivalent of the town council. It's like the RTM, they call it. When I ran, I had the entire weight of CNN, local media, the state media, state Democratic Party. M mind you, keep, keep in mind, this is for the lowest elected office in town. I was basically running for dog catcher. In an overwhelmingly majority blue district, I won. Why? Because my base overwhelmed the polls. So instead of trying to explain away some political speak to me about how I don't understand the political demographic or the complexities of the polling and what we're seeing in focus groups, maybe you should listen to someone who justified your stupid odds. Just saying. Now, I've sat in meetings on countless campaigns where they're almost always said, oh, we'll get the gun vote no matter what, because the Democrat is worse. Yep. In CT, Connecticut, we had those Republicans that said that. They all benefited from this. And they mostly dodged the gun issues, but they all ran as someone who supports the Constitution. But when it came time to vote on the 1160 bill, all right, this was the bill that after Sandy Hook passed, it turned law-abiding citizens with legally owned firearms into felons overnight. One of the most overreaching restrictive gun bills ever, ever passed in America. They folded. And when I sat down with these reps afterwards, you know, this is state senators, state reps, I sat down with these guys and said, what the hell, guys? Why did you vote for this garbage? And it was, it was like they were reading off of the same note card. It was like they were supplied these talking, but oh, well, by voting for this, we stopped it from being much worse. No, instead of just a bad bill, you gave us a bipartisanly bad bill that wouldn't have stopped the very tragedy that was the origin of the legislation in the first place. Full stop. And the Democrats have used this talking point as bipartisan legislation to beat us over the head with it for the last decade. Great job, GOP. Now, look, most gun owners are, were not single-issue voters. I care about a lot of things. But if you ignore me on this one issue, many of us were willing to exercise our additional option at the ballot box. And very few Republicans even acknowledge this. And that's to not show up. Now, I've spoken to those in the party that say, oh, Carl, this could cost Republicans the election. <laughs> Damn right it could. But I've come to understand that these washy conservatives and private folks that we're sending to Hartford or D.C. or wherever, they give us the same end result as if we send a Democrat. We just know it's coming with Democrats and we're better suited to oppose it then. A noodle Republican is not the lesser of two evils because they vote Democrat anyway. Republican representatives need to start standing up for gun owners. 
like with any other policy, but you need to do it publicly. You don't get our vote automatically anymore. You don't get our efforts automatically anymore. You see, some, some candidates are seeing this and they're winning. I, it does depend on the demographics slightly, but if you have conviction, people will vote for you. Just don't say it at a small fundraiser. Stand for it publicly. And if you can't publicly say what you said in private, I might stay home. You bring me a conservative candidate that is willing to say publicly what they said in private, make the commitments, I will go door to door, I'll call around, I'll donate every dollar I can, I will help you win that campaign until there's no rubber left on the soles of my shoes. There is zero reason Republicans should be losing many of the elections that we do. We are snatching defeat from the jaws of victory, especially in these midterms coming up. But we may, because the GOP in many places is doing exactly what they're doing in my home state. They're taking the base for granted. You know why I don't compromise on the Second Amendment? Because I don't have to. It's America, and it's the highest law of the land. And with a six to call it a five and a half to three and a half conservative Supreme Court, the libs aren't going to make it any worse in Connecticut. What I and what many others want is a candidate that is going to go there and fight to reverse some of this crazy stuff, not just hold the line. I don't want to nominate Rambo. Well, actually, I do. I, I would nominate Rambo. But you know what would be really cool? I'd be really cool with a non-gun owner who's a Republican who comes right out and says, look, guys, hey, I don't know much about guns, but I can read the Second Amendment. And it's pretty clear. Shall not be infringed. You, that person, you get my vote. You get my work. You get my effort. You get my dollars. You get the rubber on the sole of my shoes. But unfortunately, these party leaders are so set in their bubbles that they don't get that. In my op-ed for the Greenwich Free Press this week, I said they may learn this lesson the hard way. We, the gun-owning community are not going to be taken for granted anymore. If only we had a Republican who stands by our party's principles and says the same thing in private, or in public, that we say in private, the win would be a landslide against anyone. And with that, I want to bring in Patrick Dornson, a common sense commentator, and uh, he's also blogs at rideandfences.com. Patrick Dornson, how we doing, boss? I'm pretty good there, Carl. How are you? Well, you know, I'm, uh, my blood boiled a little bit when uh, they asked me to help with this special election and I got burned for it. But we're seeing this all over the country now. You're a cowboy. You kind of see this stuff all the time and you're kind of frustrated with it too. What do you have to say about it? Well, first of all, you know, you're a cowboy. You give your word, you keep it. I mean, that's pretty simple. That's pretty basic in this country. At least it used to be. And, you know, it reminds me of what uh, Harry Brown, who's a libertarian candidate for president about 40 years ago, said. They asked him, well, if you don't get elected president, uh, who would you vote for? And he said, well, I'm going to vote for the party that's going to take me to hell the slowest. And that's kind of what we have today. <laughs> we got two political parties right. that there ain't a dime's worth of difference between them. Right. I mean, you know, democracy should be uh, more than two wolves sitting down with a sheep to decide what to have for dinner. Exactly. Well, you know, you, you mentioned that it's it, people are tired for voting against someone. They, you know, they want to vote for someone. I said it. But, you know, my home state, the, the, the senators in Connecticut and the Republicans, they're, they're just ignoring people. I mean, they're doing it all over the thing. But we saw this with this infrastructure bill and the spending. Basically, we are drowning in debt in this country. And somehow, some way, there's these people who have decided that they're going to spend one point whatever trillion dollars on infrastructure, only a couple, you know, only 200 billion of it that actually goes to building a road. The other 800 and change goes to who knows what shrimp running on treadmill underwater. But I mean, are, are we the people missing something or are these people in D.C. just morons? 
We're just spectators. They don't care about us. They never have cared about us. And these 19 Republicans that voted for this infrastructure bill, as you mentioned, only a portion of it's going to go for real infrastructure. Think of this. In 2019, the American Society of Engineers said this country has $1 trillion worth of maintenance that has to be done, let alone building any new bridges. All this was, was they gave 19 senators a little pocket change to carry back to their states to say, oh, look what I got. But what it really is, is 30 pieces of silver, and they betrayed their voters, and the voters in who put them in office should be the ones putting a boot to their backside and kicking them out of office. Yeah. These guys, and, the, and these guys are ridiculous. And then they say, oh, we're going to stop the big bill. No, you're not. No. That big bill's going to run over you like a train. Yeah, no, it is. Well, pa I, Patrick, I wish we had more time because we could go on about this for the full hour. But Patrick Dorrenson, RidingFences.com, we appreciate you joining us. You bet, Carl. All right. The media's been trying to create this narrative that white evangelical Christians are the leading pack of unvaccinated Americans. Well... Now, some new numbers from the New York Times of all places. It may crush that narrative. We're going to talk to a Harvard professor after the break. Hey, I'm Rob Carson, host of the Newsmax Daily Podcast. Tired of boring traditional news updates? How about one with a conservative point of view? And it's actually funny. You can subscribe for free on the Apple Podcast app, and it downloads directly to your smartphone, so you can listen while driving, uh, to work, riding a bike, at the gym, or even while lobster fishing off the East Coast. Subscribe today with the Apple Podcast app, or go to NewsmaxTV.com slash podcasts for other platforms. Something's coming. We've seen that a lot of vaccine hesitancy is with Republicans, with uh, white evangelicals, with uh, rural populations. So I hope that, um, you know, they'll start listening and saying, uh, you know, maybe I should go get vaccinated. It's an overlapping circle. It's a complete overlapping circle among white evangelical Christians. And I, you look at the data among white evangelical Christians who support Donald Trump, more than half say they're not going to get a shot. More than half say they will not get vaccinated of white evangelical Christians who support Donald Trump. What is it about being a Republican that might make you a little shy about vaccines? Well, if you hear it on the fake news, it must be true, right? Uh, conservatives and white evangelical Christians are the problem when it comes to unvaccinated Americans, right? Well, when they talk about those folks, you know, they really just want to say Trump supporters. Okay, so it shout out to the New York Times. Actually, I never thought I'd, gee, I never thought I'd say that. So the failing New York Times for compiling some of the data. This is actual data, you know, science and evidence and things like that that they don't normally use in their hometown. Okay, new numbers show only 28%. 28% of young black new voters are vaccinated. That's compared to 48% for Latinos of the same age and 52% of white residents. Okay, kind of defeats their narrative. Darton, Dr. Martin Koldorf is a professor at Harvard Medical School, and he's had some interesting things to say about the actual mandates themselves. So, doctor, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Delight. So my thing is, I watched your hour and a half long video that you put out. It was extremely informative. And you're not an anti-vaxxer. You're not a, a crazy guy. You actually know a lot about what you're talking about. And you say that the vaccine mandates, not the vaccines, but the vaccine mandates are doing the worst thing possible for this, uh, this pandemic and the recovery of it. Yes. So for older people, it's very important to get vaccinated because they're at higher risk for uh, uh, for, for mortality, for death, if they get infected. 
But uh, there's a problem with mandates. One is if you try to force a mandate on people, there's a tendency to resist and there's skepticism then against the vaccines. Uh, so to try to force people to take uh, uh, vaccines is not a good public health uh, uh, strategy. Public health should be based on trust mm -hmm. and it has to be mutual trust. The second thing is that people who are, have had COVID, they have excellent immunity from having recovered from COVID, so they don't need the vaccines. So it's a waste to use scarce vaccines on uh, uh, people who already, and we know that uh, the people who have recovered, right. they have better or as good immunity as uh, vaccines. And right. there are people in other parts of the world who need these, older people. Yeah, doctor, I want to stop you right there real quick, because, look, I've had COVID. I had a headache for a day. I was very lucky that it didn't really affect me that much. And I recovered from it. And I've said for a long time, like, guys, like, and I also got it from somebody wearing an N95 mask, by the way. Um, but I, you know, I've had it. I, I, I'm not anti-vaccine. Look, I think vaccine is the right move for a lot of people. My parents got it. Fine. Great. Good. However, I've said I'm not sure I need it. Am, am I crazy to say that? No, you're not. Because uh, since you have recovered from COVID, you have very good immunity, and we know that it's long-lasting. And we have more evidence of the immunity from having recovered from COVID than we have from vaccines, because uh, millions of people have had COVID, and we have you, you can still be reinfected. That's what is expected. Right. But uh, uh, you, the having had it already prevents you from having severe disease or or death. Right. So uh, people who had uh, COVID do not need to get the vaccine. Right. So, you know, in the New York Times reported that this is a state that young black residents are vaccine, very vaccine hesitant for these reasons. OK, some of the fear, it says some of the fears go uh, about the vaccine go back centuries through the nation's longest history of medical experiment, experimentation on black and slave people and later on black citizens. Distrust for the vaccine has also been reinforced by contemporary injustices. That is what's causing the concerns among African-American community. Or, or is there something missing here? I mean, this is. I, I really am, am, am twisted by this because I, I, the vaccine passport, I think, is just beyond me. But if if there is some sort of hesitancy, what is the, the from a medical standpoint, what is the way to build those coalitions and encourage people to get vaccinated who should? Well, maybe they are smart because in New York, many of the African-Americans, they had COVID much at higher, much higher percentage than the, the whites. Mm -hmm. So uh, if they've had COVID, uh, they're probably smart. They understand the immunology and they know that they don't need the vaccine. So that's one reason. Uh, uh, but uh, if they haven't had COVID and if they're old, then for sure they should get it and yeah. they should be encouraged to do so. Right. Well, so you remember back in 2020 and not to you're a doctor, so I don't want to be too political with you. But listen to what all these Democrats said when Trump first came out with the vaccine. Let's just say there is a vaccine that is approved and even distributed before the election. Would you get it? Well, I think that's going to be an issue for all of us. If and when the vaccine comes, and it's not likely to go through all the tests that needs to be and the trials that are needed to be done. When we finally do, God willing, get a vaccine, who's going to take the shot? Who's going to take the shot? You can be the first one to say, put me, sign me up. They now say it's okay. And the question of whether it's real when it's there, that requires enormous transparency. You got to make all of it available to other experts across the nation. So, they you know, so doctor, this goes on and on and on. How much damage did this do to the now campaign for mandatory vaccinations? Uh, I think any skepticism of vaccines uh, can have 
have problems with getting the older to get vaccinated. But the way the way I think the way to think of it is that whenever a vaccine or a drug comes on the market, mm-hmm. we know that it's uh, effective and we know that there's no common uh, serious adverse reactions. Mm-hmm. But there could be uh, rare serious adverse reactions because that takes a couple of years to find out. So if you're if you're above 60 or above 50, then it's I think it's a no-brainer because the risk of the disease is so great that even if there's a small uh, risk, unknown risk for from yeah. the vaccine, the cost, the benefit risk ratio is just is a no-brainer. You should get the vaccine. Yeah. On the other hand, if you have children, they have extremely right. minuscule risk from, from COVID. So there, uh, it's not at all clear. Yeah. No, it is. And, and doctor, you know, I appreciate you very much joining us with this. It, it, is a, it is a medical issue, but it is also a political issue, unfortunately. So we appreciate your insight on this, sir. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. It is crazy. Folks, California Governor Gavin Newsom may be getting a bit fed up with all the recall talk. What he said today in the situation on the, go- on the ground in the Golden State. We're going to talk to California comedian Josh Denny after the break. And here we are again fighting back against those same instincts to take us back. This is the sixth recall effort. Sixth. In just two and a half years in office. What could happen on election day if we don't turn out in historic numbers to vote no on this recall. That's Governor Gavin Newsom, maybe not for long, though, getting a little bit fed up with the effort to bounce him from the governor's mansion. I don't know, maybe it's his disastrous handling of the pandemic or just being a bad governor at all. The state's never-ending battle with wildfires has added to this, and rampant homelessness and drug problems throughout the state just aren't helping him. Or just California's economy as a whole is completely tanking. Yet all the swamp creatures in Washington are lining up to back this guy. Josh Denny is a stand-up comedian who lives in L.A., which I apologize that you have to put up with that, Josh. But welcome to the show. <laughs> hey, thanks for having me. That's why I wear these big ear uh, these nice. earmuffs, so I can't hear the chaos outside. There you go. So, Josh, you know, is, is as Newsom would say, everybody's wrong. Everybody needs to turn up and vote in favor of me because I'm awesome. And uh, see you at the French Laundry? Right, exactly. Yeah, it's the it's the classic rules for thee and not for me, right? I mean, I love that he's complaining that he's like, this is the sixth recall attempt. It's like, yeah, could you imagine anybody <laughs> wanting you gone more? And now he's cr- you see him cracking uh, every single one of these press conferences more and more because he's realizing that, you know, he's hated by everyone universally in California, left, right, or center. Yeah. Well, you know, the, this is like, it's almost like history should teach us something. It's a really weird concept, I know. But the last time the left coasters, they, they recalled the governor, it was Gray Davis back in 2003, as you know. And that gave rise to something we, I guess now, we hope to forget. I mean, Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, which I'm not happy with right now after some of his <laughs> other comments. Uh, you know, this is what happens in the wake of a recall. Is this could, could this happen again with a Republican governor? Looks like potentially Larry Elder. Yeah, I, I think Larry Elder is a, a little bit of an upgrade from Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I have to imagine I, I think everybody's ecstatic to have a candidate like Larry Elder, uh, because before that, our, our best hope was Caitlyn Jenner. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> could you imagine that? It's just like. Um, well, whatever. I'm not even going to go into that. But, you know, this. <laughs> <laughs> so this one guy, he's challenging Newsom, a Republican John Cox. Check out what he said recently. I go down a list. He's to the right of Donald Trump. To the right of Donald Trump. 
That's what's at stake in this election. And don't think for a second you can't do damage in that role. Ooh, I mean, now he, he threw <laughs> Trump in there. Oh, my God. You know what, Trump, he's been out of office for six months, but still Trump, Trump, Trump. Is, it, is this going to work for him? Uh, I, I don't think so. I don't think it's working. The polls show that he's he's going behind every day. And I love this. He goes, you know, you can really do damage. Oh, yeah, we've seen it for the last yeah. month significantly. Oh, my God. I mean, you'd think that they would learn. They just don't learn. Josh Denny, we appreciate you joining us all the way from the left coast. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. Well, the Biden administration is standing idly by as Afghanistan crumbles right before our eyes. Who could possibly have seen that coming? We're going to take a look at what Joe said just one month ago that is proving he's, again, completely lost. Kabul is not uh, right now um, uh, in an imminent threat environment. But clearly, David, uh, if you just look at what the Taliban's been doing, uh, you can see that they are trying to isolate Kabul. Now, what they want to do if they achieve that isolation, I think only they can speak to. Uh, but you can see a certain uh, effort uh, to, uh, to isolate Kabul. Well, that was one of the worst press secretaries for the Department of Defense, John Kirby, serving up a word salad to the press trying to justify something. Just stopping just short of admitting that the Biden administration is basically watching the 20-year mission in Afghanistan become a complete failure. Now, the Taliban is a radical group of religious fanatics. It's steamrolling through small villages and major cities right now pretty much with ease. Uh, earlier this week, we were hearing it would take them 90 days to regain control of Kabul. But now we're hearing that it may be tomorrow. Think about that. Folks, this is the the map, the interactive map, reports say that staff of the U.S. Embassy in Kabul have been instructed to destroy sensitive information as thousands, they're pouring thousands of troops back into Afghanistan, into the largest city, to create emergency evacuations for all the embassy staff. I, you know, I can't help think about the chilling images we saw back in 1975 when the last U.S. helicopter left Saigon. I mean, thousands of people were fearing for their lives, trying to flee what, what they knew would be an oppressive regime in the aftermath of the war. But Biden administration, I mean, they really don't want to hear about that right now. You've heard the narrative and the questions from reporters and everybody else about, is this a repeat of the fall of Saigon? You're not a historian, but I know that the secretary, a number of you guys are thinking, how do you answer that question? Can you give a sense of where the analogy is apt and where it's a very bogus, fallacious analogy to equate what's going on now with the potential fall of Saigon. Yeah, Tony, what I can tell you is we're, we're, we're not focused on the history of the Vietnam War. Uh, folks, I'm a Navy SEAL. I know a thing or two about this stuff. I was actually in Iraq as U.S. troops were beginning to withdraw. I can tell you that's me on a rooftop covering a convoy of American resources leaving Fallujah. I can tell you firsthand, not how you do it. Okay, the Obama administration did, you know, did this, and they gave rise to ISIS, an even more barbaric group of the religious fanatics and the Taliban. I mean, it was just a few short weeks ago when President Biden spoke about the drawdown of the troops in Afghanistan. We thought we'd take a uh, look back at some of the things he said. The United States did what we went to do in Afghanistan, to get the terrorists who attacked us on 9-11 and deliver justice to Osama bin Laden and to degrade the terrorist threat to keep Afghanistan from becoming a base from which attacks could be continued against the United States. 
Oh, okay. That yeah, okay. That's President House plan. First off, Osama bin Laden was eventually killed in Pakistan, not Afghanistan, but you know, tomato tomato. And the people who carried out the 9/11 attacks were with the Al Qaeda network, which obviously could easily be back up and running in full force under the Taliban rule. So, next up, and partners with all the tools. Let me emphasize all the tools, training equipment of any modern military. We provided advanced weaponry. And we're going to continue to provide funding and equipment and we'll ensure they have the capacity to maintain their air force. Oh, yeah, yeah. We definitely did send the tools over there, but we basically just handed it right over to the Taliban. They're already driving around in American armored vehicles throughout the whole country. In the Afghan troops, they're waving these white flags fast than the rebels can take their guns away. Oh, by the way, you heard Slow Joe talking about the Afghan air force we built and will supposedly continue to support. Here's Taliban fighters today. Today, Friday, taking control of that Air Force with, I mean, seemingly no resistance from the Afghan military whatsoever. Now the Taliban has an Air Force. More from Joe. We will continue to provide civilian and humanitarian assistance, including speaking out for the rights of women and girls. <sighs> you think they care about that? Speaking out for the rights of women and girls? Uh, just turn on the news, bro. I mean, we're, we're not even completely out of the country yet, and there's already reports that Taliban fighters are raping girls as young as 11 years old, rounding them up and forcing them into marriage. Look, we saw one group of women in the city of Haret this week armed to the teeth, planning to resist what will certainly be a, a life of oppression and servitude under the Taliban. Haret fell to the guerrilla fighters just a few days ago. More from Joe. Is a Taliban takeover of Afghanistan now inevitable? No, it is not. Because you have the Afghan troops have 300,000 well-equipped, as well-equipped as any army in the world, and an air force against something like 75,000 Taliban. It is not inevitable. Guy just doesn't get it. Taliban takeover is not inevitable. It was just one month ago. And we're looking at the potential for Kabul to fall to the Taliban by the end of the week. Was, was, I mean, was Joe just completely, you got to wonder, was he just completely misinformed and blind to the real situation, like busy at nap time for six hours of the day? I'm, I'm sorry, in between sips of Metamucil, can this guy please get a proper briefing? Or was he just outright lying to the American people? Neither of those are a great answer, but one more. Do you see any parallels between this withdrawal and what happened in Vietnam with some people feeling... None whatsoever. Zero. What you had is you had entire brigades breaking through the gates of our embassy. Six, if I'm not mistaken. The Taliban is not the, South, the North Vietnamese army. They're not, they're not remotely comparable in terms of capability. There's going to be no circumstance where you see people being lifted off the roof of a embassy in the, of the United States from Afghanistan. It is not at all comparable. Okay, sure. Maybe he's just not getting the briefings at all. I mean, like no parallels to the fall of Saigon whatsoever. I mean, this is one of the most symbolic images of our American failure in history. I mean, Joe said it's not going to happen in Afghanistan. I can promise you that. As we speak right now, tonight, thousands of U.S. troops are headed back into Kabul so they can secure an area to evacuate the embassy and destroy everything we leave behind. That was our president just one month ago. This guy has been wrong on every major foreign policy ever for the last half century. And right now this administration is standing idly by as 20 years, thousands of American lives, trillions of dollars, 
lit on fire and flushed the ashes down the toilet. So joining us now, Florida Congressman, former Green Beret and member of the House Armed Services Committee, Michael Waltz. Uh, Congressman, we're in serious trouble right now, and I, I really don't think they understand the gravity of it. No, they don't at all. Uh, and, and Biden is barreling as we speak towards his own Saigon moment. Uh, and I just don't know if he is heartless or clueless uh, or both. But to your point, uh, this is a repeat of Obama's pull out of Iraq mm -hmm. all over again. Uh, and we are going to see al-Qaeda 3.0 uh, emerge in the wake of it. Uh, and they are going to Biden's own intelligence community has briefed us that they fully intend to attack America again. But here's the thing that has me so upset. There was no plan to take care of our local allies. Women are being uh, forced into slavery. Mm -hmm. uh, everyone who stood up with us against extremism has a bullseye on our back. But the thing that has me so upset is that American soldiers are going to have to go back again to deal with this, most yep. likely special forces, except this time we have no one that will trust us, no one that will work with us, no local bases, uh, and, and no conceivable strategy. And all of this right. blood, Carl, is going to be on Biden's hand. And I will make sure everybody knows about it. Well, you, you mentioned that. And like when I was in Iraq, I, we had interpreters, you know, as well as I do. And we had the issue of after we were done with the war, we were like, OK, bye. And all these interpreters are like, wait, hold on. I just turned my back on my on, on the entire country of, of terrorists that want to kill me and you. And now you're leaving and I got nothing. Yeah, they're doing that in Afghanistan. And these these ter the, these terrorists, they're they're literally chopping the heads off of people that went to war for us. They turned their back on everything that they were right. raised in in the Taliban territory. And now they're saying, oh, what am I going to do? I mean, who is going to help us the next time we go in there? Well, that's absolutely right. And, you know, the other thing that's so so just uh, such a slap in the face mm -hmm. is that it's likely we're going to mark the 20th anniversary of 9-11 with the fall of Kabul and the rise of al-Qaeda, ISIS and the Taliban again. It's truly unbelievable. Uh, so, look, but I have called for, uh, you know, uh, a, a turnaround. Uh, I think if you send in the Air Force right now, the Taliban are yeah. in the open. They're exposed. We call out Pakistan and sanction them who are supporting these guys. Uh, and he needs to fire his negotiating team oh, yeah. who's uh, sitting there mother may I uh, terrorists and begging them to come to the table. 100%. As you know, Carl, they understand strength and yep. leverage and bombs on foreheads. Exactly. That's it. Yeah. Uh, and that's the only way they're ever going to get back to the table is when we're in a position of strength. Right. And sometimes the only way to do that, like you said, is to turn an entire city into a parking lot. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. But that's the way we're going to do it. If they're going to go out there murdering and, and killing and taking prisoner 11 year old girls, I, I got no no sympathy for those people. All right. Congressman Mike Waltz, thank you very much for joining us. All right. Talk to you soon. Well, 40 years since the Reagan tax cuts went into effect, we're taking a look back at how it energized the American economy and some of the failures in the years since. Well, we currently have a president in the White House who is recklessly spending our tax dollars, worsening the inflation and economic crisis that he himself and his administration have created. But let's turn to a brighter time when our economy was the booming under the Reagan administration. Today, Newsmax is taking a look back at 40 years since Ronald Reagan's revolutionary tax cuts took effect. Under Reagan, the inflation rates collapsed. Oil prices were dropping significantly. He even dropped the income tax from 70 to 28 percent. 
Dick Morris is the host of Dick Morris Democracy here on Newsmax, and Craig Shirley is a presidential historian and Reagan biographer. Now, uh, Craig, I want to go to you first. The Reagan tax cuts, they came at a crucial time for America, okay, right after the deep, deep depression. And how did they change the country? They changed the country radically. First of all, it created 18 million new jobs. It spurred economic growth like you wouldn't believe. Unemployment fell drastically. Uh, is that The country was in a terrible shape during the Carter recession. We had high interest rates. We had high inflation rates. Uh, we had high unemployment. And the, the Reagan uh, tax cut uh, was not the beginning of the Reagan uh, uh, revolution, but it was an important cog in the revolution. The re revolution consisted of many things, beating the Soviets, raising American morale, other things like that. But nonetheless, getting the economy moving was very, very important. And mm -hmm. Reagan was quite successful in doing that. And he, he took an issue that had been in the province of the Democratic Party for many years. Tax cuts had been the province, right. you know, going back to FDR and then later Harry Truman and then later John Kennedy. And Re Reagan saw them. Reagan was a philosopher. He knew that power can neither be destroyed nor created. It can only be shifted around. And right. he wanted to shift power away from the national government, government back to the individual. Yeah, so Dick and he did so by he did so by allowing Americans to keep more of their own money. I mean, it seems fair, but like, Dick, why can't people look back at this and be like, low taxes, good economy, high taxes, bad economy? Like, I'm, I have no college degree. I'm not exactly like an, uh, an economical intellect here, but I figured it out, right? Yeah. Right. Well, I think that the key thing for us to understand about the Reagan tax cuts is that he said, uh, echoing the idea of the economist uh, Laffer, that when you cut taxes, you increase revenues. And that sounds completely oxymoronic. It sounds like the exact opposite. But you look at a graph of what happened during the Reagan presidency, and that's precisely what happened. As the income tax rate was dropping from, as you said, 70% down to 28, uh, the revenues of the federal government were soaring, the budget was balanced, and the economy came roaring back. Uh, yeah, there it is. There's the chart. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, we have an, it assured incredible economic growth. So the problem is that, uh, that Biden has it precisely the opposite. He's raising taxes, not cutting taxes, mm -hmm. and it's cutting economic growth. Uh, and ultimately bringing in inflation because it's like a car spinning its wheels but not going anywhere. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, Carl, it's just completely the opposite of Reagan. Yeah, Craig, I got yeah, about 30 yeah, seconds. Carl, what you got? Yes. What it is is that completely consistent with the philosophies of the two parties, the Republican Party and the conservative movement is about the individual. The Democratic Party and the liberal movement is about the yeah. state. They are about yeah. acquiring power. It that's is. It's all about power. That's why. Craig Shirley, Dick Morris, we yes. appreciate it. All right, back, folks. Carl. Have a good weekend. You too. All right, folks, we'll be right back. Arnold, 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 Arnold. He came out swinging earlier this week trying to bully people about masks, pushing this liberal agenda. People should know there is a virus here. It kills people. And the only way we prevent it is, is to get vaccinated, to wear masks, to do social distancing, washing your hands all the time, and not just to think about, well, my freedom is being kind of disturbed here. No, screw your freedom, because with freedom comes obligations and, uh, and responsibilities. 
Yeah, you have the freedom to wear no mask, but you know something, you're a schmuck for not wearing a mask. Someone I looked up to for years, a man known for his strength, who, by the way, now I have outlifted him and he has no use in the gym for me. But look, this is, he's now a pawn for the left. Arnold Schwarzenegger, look, while I was honored, you complimented my kick-ass workouts a few years ago, you're dead to me. I will no longer look up to you and my son will no longer look up to you. You're just another sheep in the herd. I'm sorry. I'll be back tomorrow, 9 a.m. Eastern, right here on Newsmax for the Saturday Report. That's my weekend show here on Newsmax.com. Don't worry, Greg Kelly, back tomorrow. Stand by for Stinchfield. Have a great weekend.